it as we pray together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today praising you and thanking you for all that you've given to us. Lord, we are amazed by your, your awesome power and your glory, by your awesome justice and righteousness, and by your awesome love and mercy. And Lord, for all of those things that you are worthy of praising you, Lord, we, we come before you today to do so, to offer all that we have to you, all that we can possibly give you this morning in order to sing your praises and, and um, to show you and show each other and show the world just how much we love you. And so, Lord, as we um, gather together to sing praises, to, prayer together, to pray together, to uh, read and hear your word together, Lord, I pray that you would uh, reach out and draw us closer to you. Lord, help us to know you more and to love you more this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. At this be dismissed for Children's Church. Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, it's better. I feel a lot better knowing that you're here. Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. You can find that on page 1 of your Bible. And uh, we've got two more times we're going to be looking through this passage. And so I'd like to read once more as we reflect and meditate on God's Word here. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. It was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures 
and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. May the Lord add his blessing at the hearing and the reading of his word this morning. Well, two men, Charles Darwin and Herbert Spencer, I'm sure you're familiar with Charles Darwin, not so much maybe Herbert Spencer. Charles Darwin, of course, wrote the book, The Origin of the Species in 1859, where the idea of natural selection was put forward. Herbert Spencer wrote Principles of Biology in 1864. He was the one who coined the phrase, the survival of the fittest. And, of course, he came up with that idea only after reading Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. In light of those ideas, those ideas that are couched in an ideology, what are some of the catastrophic implications that come from these ideas and thoughts? Well, think about it with me. If atheistic evolution is true, that is, atheistic, godless, if a godless evolution where we are all random chance processes in terms of cellular division all the way from the amoeba all the way to mankind. If atheistic godless evolution is true, then we are just animals. And therefore, the child in the mother's womb is just a fetus, just a piece of tissue to be discarded when it's inconvenient. If atheistic evolution is true, then babies can, in some cases, probably should be aborted. If atheistic evolution is true, then we are just animals, and we should be able to copulate with anyone or anything we want to. Incest would be okay. Sex with children, having multiple partners, adultery, bestiology, homosexuality, pornography, making love to a graphic image or a piece of cardboard would be perfectly fine and legitimate. If atheistic evolution is true, then Hitler was right. We need to destroy inferior genomes in support of improving the gene pool. In this view, clearly blacks and Jews would need to be eradicated as inferior races. Atheistic evolution, followed to its ends, would insist that those who evolved most recently are the superior race compared to those who evolved initially. The longer time goes on, the better the genome should be. So let's just help natural selection along. And that's exactly what Adolf Hitler did through his outrageous racism. 
You You see, Hitler just took Darwin and Spencer seriously. And in the process, he murdered millions of Jews, blacks, and in his words, subhumans. So let's illustrate this a little bit. And uh, got a wonderful muffin here. And Laura, would you come up and help me demonstrate this? Just come on up. You won't have to do much. You can just stand right here. Uh, let's think about this. If atheistic evolution is true, then one of us evolved first. And of course, the scientists tell us that it was an African bushwoman who evolved first. And therefore, the male is the superior being. So if evolutionary ideology is true from an atheistic standpoint, then quite frankly, in terms of our discussion about the muffin, I have every right and quite frankly a responsibility to do whatever it takes to make sure I get the muffin and you don't. In other words, I would have every right to treat you horribly, abuse you, deny you, even murder you so that I could have the muffin. Do you understand what's at stake here? This is what evolutionary ideology tells us. We are just animals. And if I'm the superior being, then I get the muffin and you don't. Thank you, Lord. You did a great job. Have a seat. (laughs) By the way, you'll be back a little later. So stay tuned for that. So the question is, are we just animals? Survival of the fittest, is that what it's all about? Even though there are those who believe that we are all just animals subject to the cold cruelties of natural selection and the survival of the fittest, we, however, have clearly seen through God's word, God's incredible power, authority, and creativity as he brought forth every living thing from the earth. But we are not just animals. God has shared with us his character, his authority, his unified plurality, and his love in making us in his very image. In our text today, we will also see God's perfect design for marriage, one man for one woman, where God created male and female. He created them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. As a church, we must address our culture's enthrallment with homosexuality, gender confusion, and now what's known as gender dysphoria. This is what our culture is all about right now. Of course, gender dysphoria, the condition of feeling one's emotional and psychological identity as male or female to be opposite to one's biological sex. It used to be known as a psychological disorder as gender identity disorder, and now it's been reclassified. Of course, our culture is determined to make heroes out of the likes of people like Bruce Jenner. The 1976 Olympic male decathlon gold medal winner in Montreal, who for the last several years calls himself Caitlyn Jenner. He fathered, by the way, six children through three different wives. I don't know, it seems pretty masculine to me. There's a great article by John Bloom from Desiring God that suggests how we as Christ followers should respond to all this. John Bloom suggests that we need to respond, first of all, with compassion. We can be compassionate people as Christ followers without compromising biblical truth. 
Secondly, we need to respond with prayer. We should be praying for the likes of Bruce Jenner and that somehow God would touch his heart. Thirdly, we can respond with great understanding. We need to recognize that all of us in this room, all of us are sinners. We need to have more understanding on what Bruce and others are wrestling with in light of this fact that we all wrestle with various things. I'd like to remind you what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but based on that list, I'm out. All of us are out. And Paul reminds us, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified, set apart unto holiness. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. We need to respond with compassion, with prayer, with greater understanding. And fourthly here, we need to respond with truthful love. We should love sinners and despise the sin. And by the way, if we were to hate sinners, then this place, this church, would be a place of hatred and abuse. Rather, we are to be a place of grace, forgiveness, and restoration, where we choose to love people right where they are with all the rebellion, the same rebellions I have. The scripture points out that Jesus was a friend of sinners. We wrestle with that, that he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors to share the truth of the gospel. And yet he spoke the truth in love as he called those around him to repentance from sin. We need to do the same. Good advice from John Bloom. Today in our series, Genesis, Back to the Beginning, as we go back to the beginning, we're going to look at the sixth day in particular. On day six, God completed what he began on day one, where he initially fashioned for the first three days, and then he filled for the second set of three days. Let's take a look one more time. The first three days, as we discussed, he uh, first of all separated the light from the dark on day one. And day two, he separated the atmosphere from the hydrosphere, the water sphere. Day, through, day three, he brought forth the dry land and the vegetation. And then after he fashioned, he then filled that which he fashioned in the second set of three days, where he fills the light and the dark with the sun and moon and the stars, respectively, and correspondingly with, verse, uh, with number four here. And then day five, he filled the hydrosphere and atmosphere with sea and flying creatures, the fish and the fowl. And then day six, he filled the land and the vegetation with animals and ultimately man. That's what we've looked at. That's what we've seen. And today I have two truths for you to consider. But before we dive in, let's ask God's help. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize as we come to your word that we are a needy people in need of hearing from you and to be taught by you more than anything else. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word, we ask that you'd open it, open up your word to our hearts and our minds. And, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and our minds to hear from you the power of your spirit from your word. Lord, help us not to miss anything. Help us to be good students, good Bereans, as the New Testament teaches seeing that these things are actually so. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for attending to us. Thank you for your presence in this place. Be our guide as we turn to you just now. 
We pray this in your son's wonderful and awesome name. Amen. If you have your sermon notes outlined, here's the first truth. Man, there's two today. Here's the first one. God brought forth amazing living creatures. I don't know if you ever thought about all the animals around the planet. Incredible living creatures. How'd he do it? Well, he brought, he brought all these amazing living creatures about with great power. Notice what it said in verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Think about that. Brought forth the animals, how? From the earth. Are you understanding what's being said? Out of the ground come all the creatures. I mean, amazing. A bunch of dirt and then there's a, there's a lamb. There it is. Bunch of dirt. There's a dog, okay? Cattle. Unbelievable. Right out of the ground. What kind of power would it take to do that? Can anybody in this room do that? I can't. But he can. Why? Because he's God. He brought forth amazing living creatures with great power. Compare that with plant life. Verse 11 said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And now the earth brought forth vegetation. And now the earth brings forth living creatures. Unbelievable. God made the beasts, it says in verse 25. Both plant life and animal life literally come up out of the earth. As we'll see, the same will be true for humanity as well. Perhaps, of course, you've heard about the time God was approached by a scientist who said, listen, God, we've decided we don't need you anymore. These days we can clone people, transplant organs, and do all sorts of things that used to be considered miracles. God replied, don't need me, huh? God continued, well, how about we put your theory to the test? Why don't we have a competition to see who can make a human being? Say a, a male human being, God said. The scientists agreed. So God declared they should do it like he did in the good old days when he created Adam. Fine, says the scientist, as he bent down to scoop up a handful of dirt. Whoa, whoa wait a minute, said God. Get your own dirt. God brought forth amazing living creatures with great power. Secondly, he brings them about with sovereign order. Did you notice 24 and 25? Five times we have the idea of kinds. According to their kinds. They're brought forth according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. According to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It just seems to me it's possible that it's being repeated for us that because God knew we were going to have a problem with this later. It's after their own kind. Weasels recreate weasels. They don't create wombats. Now, if you can get a weasel to create a wombat, we'll, we'll talk about it. But you can't, and nobody ever has, and it doesn't happen. Matter of fact, uh, we would argue that it can't happen. This is a great... Uh, article, if you're interested, you can uh, go online to icr.org, the Institute for Creation Research, and find journal articles written by actual scientists where they actually do follow the science <laughs> and uh, refer to some incredible things. This is uh, written by Henry Morris some years ago, and he, the title of the heading of this portion is Evolution is Impossible. Notice what's said here. 
The main scientific reason why there's no evidence for evolution in either the present or the past, you understand that? There's no evidence, there's actually, in fact, no evidence for evolution ever taking place. Do you understand that? There, there just isn't. I've been on college campuses for years now, and I've asked students, does anybody have any evidence for macroevolution? Can anybody present anything where we have the wombat creating the weasel? Can any, does anybody have any examples? And it's goose egg silence, nothing. Nobody says anything. Why? Because they don't have any evidence. It's not there. Well, we have these missing links. Yeah, well, they're missing. Where are they? Maybe because they never existed. The main scientific reason why there's no evidence for evolution in either the present or the past is because one of the most fundamental laws of nature precludes it. The law of increasing entropy. Perhaps you've heard of it, also known as the second law of thermodynamics from physics stipulates that all systems in the real world tend to go downhill. Stuff rolls downhill, right? As it were, toward disorganization. Don't forget that word. Things roll downhill and become more disorganized and decrease in complexity. If you're wondering about the truth of this, the veracity of this or not, just go to your garage and tell me how ordered it is. <laughs> or your basement, or your attic, right? It gets more chaos. You just keep throwing more stuff in there. The law of entropy is, by any measure, one of the most universal, best-proved laws of nature. It applies not only in physical and chemical systems, but also in biological and geological systems. In fact, all systems without exception. Kent, is that true? As our resident scientist, he agrees. The article goes on to say... Genetically speaking, therefore, mutations, by definition, are just not organizing principles. <laughs> They're not organizing uh, mechanisms at all, but disorganizing in accord with the second law of thermodynamics. They are commonly harmful, sometimes neutral, never beneficial. Natural selection cannot generate order, but can only sieve it out. You can only sieve out the disorganizing mutations presented to it, thereby conserving the existing order, but never generating new order. In conclusion, the article says, from the statements of evolutionists themselves, therefore, we have learned that there is no real scientific evidence for real evolution. The only observable evidence is that of very limited horizontal or downward changes within strict limits. In other words, we're losing information. We're not getting better and more complex information, we're losing it. Evolution never occurred in the past, is not occurring at present, and could never happen at all. Any questions? Don't be misled. God created all things after their own kinds with his sovereign order in place. And just to, just to give you a sampling of some of the incredible ingenuity of our God and what he made, let's just take a giraffe. I think I got a picture. There he is. A giraffe, a little baby giraffe, aren't giraffes cool? Do you realize the heart of a giraffe is as big as a turkey? <laughs> you all get your Thanksgiving turkey? Okay, look at that thing. That's as big as a giraffe heart. The pressure at which the heart pumps is at least twice that of other mammals to pump blood up 10 feet to the brain. You understand what's going on here? This, this muscle is huge. It has to be huge because it's pumping a lot of blood all the way up to that little bitty peanut of a brain that's way up there in that thing. 
But you know, there's a problem for the giraffe when it bends its neck to drink water on the ground without the blood veins and capillaries automatically restricting and regulating the blood flow to the head within the neck, the giraffe's brain and eyes would explode, okay? It's an amazing design. Incredible. Of course, evolutionist argument. Listen to the evolutionist argument about how, why a giraffe's neck's long. You ever thought about this? Evolutionist argument by way of natural selection. Well, the giraffe's neck got long because there was no food in lower areas. And I said, well, what about baby giraffes? What'd they eat? And what about elephants and rhinos and hippos? Shouldn't they all be extinct now because there wasn't any food lower down? It makes no sense at all. Why do we even buy this stuff? God brought forth amazing living creatures with sovereign order, with incredible power. Thirdly, with great creativity and diversity. Notice the diversity that's mentioned in verse 24 and 25. We have livestock mentioned. The Hebrew word for livestock is behemoth. Behemoth, which literally translates as bigot critter. The first of the ways of God. Job 40 talks about behemoth, and uh, this isn't any normal kind of critter. Sometimes in the notes over the last 50 years, there's only Bibles just now starting to go, wait a minute, this probably was a dinosaur. Um, it's, it's, this, it's a new idea in the last 10 years that the, the translators are going, maybe that was a dinosaur. But what they've had in the past is they, they put in there, it could be a hippo or a rhino or something. And then you go to like Job 40 and you read about behemoth and you find out that thing's got a tail as big as a cedar tree. You ever seen an elephant tail? Ever seen a hippopotamus tail? Little bitty thing, little thing. See, that's not a cedar tree, just telling you, okay? This is not a cedar tree. What is it talking about? Some huge big thing, behemoth, that reproduces after its own kind. Wow. What else? Creeping things in the Hebrew, remesh, fast-running, quick-footed critters like reptiles. You ever been down in Florida, those little lizards? You, know, you can't catch them things. Little, and beasts, chaya, animals, living creatures. And we're told in 24 and 25 that it was all good. The Hebrew here, tov, it's all good, if you will, beautiful. It's awesome. God brought forth amazing living creatures with great power, with sovereign order, and with incredible, unique creativity and diversity. And you know what? When you go look, that's exactly what we have. This is our God. But secondly, and you don't want to miss this today, God made man exclu exclusively in his own image. Verse 26 and 27. This is incredible. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. God made man exclusively in his own image, first of all here, to reflect his very character. God made us in his image to reflect his character. What, what about his character? Most theologians, systematic theologians would say in write and talk about God's communicable attributes. There are incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. 
incommunicable attributes or those attributes about God that we can't have any part in. God is uh, omnipresent. I'm not omnipresent. I'll never be, right? There are things about who God is that we're just not about at all. But in terms of his character attributes, we have access to that. God is loving, and therefore we can love. God is holy. We can walk in righteousness and purity, the help of the Holy Spirit in us through faith. God is wise, and we have access to wisdom if we'd only ask. He is holy. He is just. These character attributes, these communicable attributes that we can ascend to. And by the way, it's because we were made in his image. This is why murder and hatred are such a great evil. To hate a person is to despise God's image in that person. To murder a person is to destroy God's image. We have no right to hate and belittle people. We have every right to love people around us. We end up despising what God has made. And we end up despising his own very image in those around us. If you're going to hate anyone or anything, hate the sin and not the sinner. God made man exclusively in his image to reflect his character. Secondly, God made us in his image to reflect his authority. Notice what it says in verse 26, and let them rule. God made us in his image to reflect his authority. We are not a part of the animal kingdom. We are called to rule over the animal kingdom. Adam and Eve were the first king and queen of all creation with God as the ultimate sovereign and Adam and Eve acting on his behalf as vassal rulers over his good earth. We are similar to the animal kingdom, but we were created with great distinction from it. We've been endowed with reason, with self-consciousness, self-reflection, creative, artistic design capacities, gregariousness, various languages. We are called to rule. This is so different than the rest of the animal world. As God rules, we're called to rule the way God rules. God made us exclusively in his image to reflect his authority, to reflect his character. Thirdly, and don't miss this today because this is humongous. God created us to reflect his unity and diversity. God made us in his image to reflect his unified plurality. You ever notice or wonder about those plural pronouns there in verse 26? Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. You kind of wonder, well, who's he, who's he talking to? And we can start to wonder, well, is he, is he talking to the angels here or something? Well, no, because we're not made in the image of angels, and neither is God. Angels are created spirit beings, so that doesn't work. Um, Maybe there are other gods. No, we're told throughout Scripture there is only one God. So that's so. Who's God talking to? It's interesting to note that in the very language itself, it opens up the door for us to understand who God is in His very being and His very essence. It says, "Then God said." The word "God" here in the text in Hebrew is Elohim. Whenever you have a Hebrew word that ends in im, it's in the plural. If I say sus, 
that's a horse. Susim, that's a herd of horses. Elohim, it's in the plural. But the verb for said, value when God declares something or says something, the verb here in this very text is in the singular. So this is like either really super horrible Hebrew or fantastic theology. Well, we're going to go with the fantastic theology. This is incredible theology. Because our God is one and yet he's three. When we look at the revelation of all that God has given us, we see throughout scripture that he is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They are three yet one. This is our God. And so notice the play on words then. And precisely with what he's creating in man. Then God plurally, singularly says, let us, plurally, make man singular in our plural image according to our plural likeness. Notice the fun God's having here with this. And let them, wait, where'd them come from? They were just man singular. Now we got them, so there's plurality already with man. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and everything else. Verse 27, God created man singular in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Yeah. Don't miss how huge this is. If you look at day two of creation, uh, I shouldn't say that. If you look at chapter two of the Genesis account, that's what I'm trying to say. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, we see how the specifics of all that God created on day 6. There was a moment in time as God is creating on day 6. After he makes the man, he points out that there's something that's not good. Every day he creates, he says, man, this is good. It's all good. It's all good. But right in the middle of day 6, he says there's something that's not good. What does he say? It's not good, verse 18 of chapter 2, that the man should be alone. Now, by the way, God has a solution in the midst of his creating. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, great. Awesome. So in verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, which, by the way, I'm very encouraged by this, that if God's going to pull stuff out of my body, he's going to knock me out first. The first anesthesia, right? Okay. He puts him out, right? Do you feel better, a little safer now? Right, I do. Uh, so he takes a rib out. You know, what are that noise is when the rib pops out, right? He takes the rib. And uh, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep, 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So, you know, Jaffa Melody, you know, having a big date, you know, big date night, and Melody gets all decked out, and she's coming out to go, and, and Jeff looks at her and goes, oh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she's like, you're weird. I'm not going with you anywhere. But you know, that's like the most awesome thing that could be said. The reason is so awesome because it was exactly true that you were made for him, taken part of him. It's amazing. Now, in chapter 2 here of Genesis, we then see the purpose. Verse 24, therefore, here Moses interjects for us the reason behind what God is doing here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be what? 
one flesh. Okay, so let's do the math on this. So he makes the one, here's, the, here's Adam, from the one, pulls the rib out, whatever that noise is, and then, and then makes two so the two can be what? One. You understand, this is how we are made in God's image because he's a singular plurality and he just did the same thing with us. From the one, he makes two so they can be one. Now you go, okay, thanks for sharing chapter one, chapter two. Well, we'll jump to chapter five. Chapter five, we see this again. I'll put it up on the screen here. It should say uh, verse one and two instead of 11 and two. Sorry, my, that's my typo. It's not upstairs. I did that. Genesis five, one and two. Now listen to what it says. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. He made him singular in the likeness of God. This is the same discussion point, isn't it? We're made in his image. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man, singularly. Oh my goodness, there it is again. This is how he made us. When they were created. You guys, you understand what's at stake here? There's something about a man and a woman together that reflects who God is in his very being more than anything else on the planet. This helps us understand several things. This is why God cannot stand divorce. Why? Because it destroys a man. Marriage is like taking two pieces of paper and gluing it together, right? And then try to take it apart later. You're going to shred it, right, to get it apart. That's what, if you've been divorced, you know what I'm talking about. You've been shredded a bit. It's not easy. It's painful. This is why God cannot stand homosexuality, because that doesn't represent what he designed and ordained. One man, one woman reflecting who he is. By the way, isn't it interesting, even in homosexual partners, one of them will put on a female characteristic, one a male characteristic. In other words, they will duplicate what God designed in their rebellion. And you're, you're kidding me. Why? Because we can't get away from it. Because this is what he made, how he designed it for us. And it was beautiful and awesome. Now, how you doing? <laughs> God made man exclusively in his own image to reflect his unity and diversity. Jesus was cornered on this at one point in Matthew 19, being drilled by some of the Pharisees. And notice what Jesus, where does Jesus go for his answer about marriage? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? What's he referring to? Talking about Genesis. And said, said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no, no man separate. Every wedding I've ever done, I've said that phrase. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Now we'll talk about the roles of men and women when we get to Genesis 2, so stay tuned for that. But for now, understand with great distinction that God made man exclusively to reflect his unity and diversity. Lastly, this morning, ultimately, we are made in his image, exclusively in his image, to reflect his love. In verse 28, it says, And God blessed them. 
I'm not going to go any further than that. Just understand next week we're going to unpack this incredible blessing, this incredible gracious love that God has for all of humanity from, uh, in Genesis 28. So a little sneak preview for that for next week. But here we see that God's purpose in creating Adam and Eve as male and female was so that he could demonstrate his love for them through blessing them in amazing ways, as we'll see specifically next week. God made us in his image to reflect his love. Of course, this comes to culmination in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who demonstrated his love for us through laying down his life for us. There's no greater love. There's no greater blessing. This is why God uses marriage to de demonstrate the gospel. Ultimately, marriage reflects the gospel. Now, to get a handle on this, I'd like for you all to turn to Ephesians 5. Don't close up your Bible because you've got the last blank filled in. Go to Ephesians 5. I want you to see this with your own eyeballs. Uh, I want you to see this incredible passage about the unity and oneness that's supposed to be in marriage that should reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5. You will not be on your screen. Now, in verse 22, you see a wonderful verse where it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Ladies, I want to help you out here for a little bit. Can I? Uh, no one's probably ever told you that the word submit is not even in verse 22. It's not there. In other words, in verse 22, if you were to read it literally from the Greek, it would say this, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, the only way to get the context for the, the translation that they have here by putting the word submit in here is to back up a verse to verse 21. Now understand, most of you in your Bibles, as you're looking, you probably see a little line that says, wives and husbands, or something about marriage. And if you will, that little header, which is not biblical, interrupts the flow of the text. Because you have to have 21, really, to understand 22. Why? What's 21 say? Submitting to one another out of reverence of, for Christ. That's the deal. All of us in this room are to be submitting to one another. I'm submitting to you right now as I'm trying to pour out my guts about what God has to say about these things. And you're trying to submit your way back here to me in terms of trying to take it all in. Right? We're in a mutually submitted relationship right now. And so now the Apostle Paul is going to say, now let's talk about marriage by way of this mutual submission, okay? Uh, ladies first, we'll talk about that component first. We'll talk about what your submission should look like. And then we'll talk about the men's submission because it's mutually submitted. Again, we'll talk about roles later. We're just talking about who we are as people before God. So what does it say? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, Okay. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, let's stop for a second. Okay, wives, you get this? It's not a hard metaphor. It's not a hard analogy to figure out. You ladies in marriage and those who are intending to be married one day, your love for your spouse, your love for your husband is to look like the church's devotion to Jesus. And we go, okay, let's, let's explore that a little bit. What, what should our devotion as a church look like towards Christ? We're to love him. We're to follow him. 
were to honor him, respect him, obey him. Oh, here's a tough one. Worship him. My husband? Wasn't too long ago, back in the day, the wedding vow went like this, and with my body I thee worship. That's what we used to say. Oh, we scratched that out. That's too crazy. Not worshiping as unto God, but worshiping, valuing, upholding. It's a beautiful thought. Most ladies I've talked to, they're like, I got work to do. Yeah, right. I, I get it. That's, that's, a tough, that's a tough call to be like what we should be doing as a church. Ladies first. Well, okay, how about you guys? Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Quite frankly, ladies, you got it easy. You just have to submit. Guys, you get to die. Okay. That's what it's like to be like Jesus. Got work to do, probably. By the way, here's what I'm convinced of. If, if guys loved their wives this way to such an extent that they were laying down their lives for their wives, their women would be falling all over themselves to follow them. Ladies, am I right about this? Ladies, I'm seeing not as, I want to hear it. Am I right about this? Yeah. Okay. Guys, to get, get a clue. Pay attention. This is huge. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that is to make her or present her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or in any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, make sure you understand what's being said here. I don't know about you guys, but my biggest problem is I love me way too much. I don't need more self-esteem. That's my problem. I'm all about Brad. I need more Christ-esteem. That's what I need. I need to love him more. You know, people talk about, you know, oh, he just needs more self-esteem. Well, so even the person who's, you know, thinking horrible thoughts about themselves, about how low they are, who are they thinking about? Themselves! All the way to the other end of the spectrum with those who are prideful and arrogant. No difference. That's why we need Christ. We need more Christ-esteem here. Why? Because naturally, I mean, guys, this is what we do. You know, the... the Food comes around, and what do we do? We naturally look for the big piece of pie, the big piece of steak, the big piece of whatever for the great me. As opposed to, no, wait a minute, maybe I should make sure somebody else gets that. I guarantee if I had a big barrel of apples and I pass around this room and I get the basket back, I, all the bad apples will be left, right? What's our natural disposition? We look in and go, I want a good apple for me. That other, that wormy one, that's somebody else's problem. You go to the grocery store, you don't buy the box that's bent in or the can that's divoted. Right? I want to reach back in there and grab a good one for me because I'm getting the good stuff. That don't want somebody else's problem. This is our natural disposition. With that natural disposition, how we care for ourselves, that needs to be extended to those around us, in particular in marriage, to my spouse. I want to make sure you get the awesome apple, honey. You get the good one. I'll take the leftover. Daily little deaths, men, as we lay down our lives for our spouse. 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or, or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just like we were just talking about, just as Christ does the church. Why? Because we are all members of his body. Therefore, look, don't miss it, verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There it is again. Kabam! It's all about our being one, which is a reflection of the divine image of who God is in his very being. This mystery is profound, he says. He's like, this is kind of blowing me away. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Beloved, this is where we need to go with all of this that we're talking about, that we reflect his love in a real way in all of our relationships because to the degree that we do, we end up reflecting who God is. In your family, Husbands, you love your wife, your kids are watching that. Ladies, your kids are watching. You get to demonstrate, you get to reflect his love. You get to reflect his unity and his diversity, his authority as you rule in your household, and his very character as you execute justice, wisdom, holiness. So we got a muffin here. Laura, come on back. Look, if evolutionary ideology is true, then I should just destroy you and take the muffin. But if all this is true, then I want to make sure you're honored, you're valued, you're cared for. I want to make sure you get the muffin. Because there's love, there's care, sacrifice. You may be seated. I don't want it. <laughs> I'm insistent that you have it. Beloved, we can clearly see God's power, authority, and creativity as he brings forth all the animals on the earth. But we're not just animals, are we? God has shared his character, his authority, his unified plurality, and his love in making us in his image based on his created, creative efforts on day six. Everything is put in order for us to such a degree that now... The child in the mother's womb is precious and made in God's image. Sexual intimacy was beautifully designed by God for one man and one woman in marriage. No matter what our skin color is or our gender, God has blessed us. We are all made in God's image, so we should highly esteem and value each other, everyone, no matter who they are no matter what they're wrestling with. This is God's call for us, not only in the church, but as a community of Christ followers. Oh, that we'd actually not just hear these things, but we would believe them and we'd walk in them in reality. Would you please stand as we close our service today? 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize as we hear these things, we've got a lot of work to do, whether a husband or a wife or someone who's longing to be married. A lot of growth that needs to take place for us. But Lord, we desperately want to reflect your character. We want to reflect your authority, your, your unity and diversity. And Lord, we want to reflect your love. Lord, we recognize how you made things with such order, with your sovereign power and grace for your purposes, with such incredible design. We just can't get away from it. You're so good. You are so awesome. You are God, pulling stuff out of the ground into living creatures. Amazing. You are God. Lord, may we be those who aren't just hearing these things today, but that we might be about them, that we might fall all the more in love with you because it's all from you. Not only is your word from you, but all that you've created is from you. As we reflect on the beauty of your unity and your diversity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one and yet three. And so, Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit's work in our heart, in our life, as we can finally attribute right significance to what we're hearing today. But, Lord, knowing full well that we can't do these things, we can't be about them in our own strength, we need the Holy Spirit in us through faith in Christ that we might walk rightly with you. Lord, I do pray for our families. I pray for husbands and wives. The wives would be like the church. The husbands would be like Christ in every way. Strengthen our families, Lord. They're under incredible attack right now. And Lord, help us to find ways to be gracious to those who don't understand your awesome creation, who don't understand or value these things. May we come alongside them and show them a better way and not at them. May we show them your grace. Lord, we're reminded ourselves that it's it was your grace, your kindness toward us that led us to repentance. May we in turn go and shine your light in such a way to bring kindness and grace and mercy to those who are just lost and confused and they've never seen it any other way. So Lord, help us to be great ambassadors as we shine your light. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your word. We just want to give you all the praise today. And all God's people said, amen. Have a fantastic week. Thank you so much for coming. And happy Thanksgiving.